Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's take a few moments to have some uh, silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to uh, study the word and put aside all those distracting thoughts about whatever's going on in your lives and whatever's going to happen tomorrow, whatever should have happened today, and all those things that distract you, including being tired. You get a brief nap while we're quiet so that you can recharge your batteries. Just one of those 10-second power naps if you need it, and then we can get started. Okay, let's bow our heads together. Father, we are so thankful that we have the freedom still to gather together as believers to study your word, that we can uh, understand what you have revealed to us, that we have God, the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand these things and put them into practice in our lives and to give us a, a framework for understanding and evaluating not only history in terms of the broad span of your plan, but that we're a vital part of that history for each of us or are writing our own testimony, writing our own history within the panorama of the, your historical plan. And, Father, we live in challenging times. We live in times when uh, we see the world around us going in a direction that is more and more hostile to truth, more and more hostile to divine viewpoint. We see the, the culture that we have here in the United States, the culture that was uh, founded on biblical principles, the culture that was founded on truth, the culture that is... Uh, for so so many years has provided a basis of fr- real freedom and liberty, just uh, evaporating before our eyes with as as uh, decisions are made in Washington. And we just pray for our leaders that that wisdom uh, will somehow uh, get into the thinking of those in Washington. We pray that you would uh, give them uh, insight. We pray that however you're working things, that we as believers can maintain a solid testimony. Uh, maintaining our our joy and our own stability and happiness despite the uh, trends around us. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we continue to focus on the future and what, how you are preparing us today for our future role with you in, in the kingdom and in eternity. pray that we might be able to concentrate and focus this evening as we study your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Power nap's over. Everybody wake up. We're in Hebrews 9.15, but only briefly. We'll start off with a test. It's always good to have a test every now and then, not just to see if people are, are awake, paying attention. And this is one of those critical uh, critical thinking type of tests. And there are going to be uh, two questions. And this is sort of a... Uh, a true or false kind of thing. And then the second part is going to be, can anybody explain why it's true or why it's false? I ran across this quote today in a book that was recommended to me 
several years ago by a doctrinal pastor. That's all I remember. I don't know who it was. So it wasn't someone, I know it wasn't someone I spend a lot of time talking with or a lot of time uh, communicating with. So that will remove a lot of people from your uh, from your thinking. It was someone, uh, someone else, someone uh, peripheral. And they had recommended this particular book, and I picked it up, and they said, this is a great book for understanding things that are going on in in Hebrews. And I've looked at it here or there along the way, and uh, I look at so many different things, I actually had forgotten about it. So I picked it up uh, yesterday, and there was a chapter in this book on inheritance. I thought, well, this should be interesting. Now, the title of the book is Slaves, Citizens, Sons. Legal metaphors in the epistles. Slaves, citizens, sons, legal metaphors in the epistles. And the author is a legal professor, and he also has some theological training. And I ran across this statement, and you need to tell me whether this is true or false. This is in the second page of the chapter, and he said, As with the other metaphors we have looked at, we will refer most of the imagery that is, imagery related to inheritance, most of the imagery to Roman law for its content. Inheritance as such we can take more generally, but the technical ideas of heirship need to be located in a single legal system. As we will see, the Roman and the Jewish laws have markedly different concepts of heirship, and the evidence argues for the Roman reference. Briefly, the heir in Jewish law does not exist until the death of his ancestor. In Roman law, the concept of heir is more profound, the heir having legal existence during the life of his predecessor. Is that true or false? This is a good critical thinking quote. Let's see if anybody was paying attention last Thursday night. False. Why is it false? What? One di- well, I don't want something to look better than one-dimensional. Anybody else have a... Yeah, so, yeah, the point is that in Roman law, someone has to die. And I pointed out last time that when you go to the Old Testament, you don't always have a death before there is inheritance. And so I would disagree with his analysis that in Jewish law... Some, there has to be the death before there's an inheritance. And I'm going to show you another scripture passage, passage on that in just a minute. But can anybody point out another methodological flaw that's here? Where is he looking for his understanding of inheritance in the New Testament? Where is he looking for the background to the concept of inheritance? Doug, you know? Yeah, he's looking to Rome. What about the Old Testament? Isn't the old, aren't Old Testament concepts the framework for understanding New Testament concepts, not Rome or Greece? And that's a really important thing to understand because a lot of, a lot of times you'll have people, uh, make those errors. It seems like a lot of times we become enamored with Greek culture and Roman culture, Greek history and Roman history, and there's a lot there that's important to understand for background, for isagogics, but when we look at the New Testament. The New Testament writers are are all Jews. Paul is a one of the uh, arguably he was the most brilliant rabbinical student of his day. So that when they talk, they're not talking. Uh, 
in the context of Greek or Roman culture, they may be speaking Greek, but they're thinking in terms of Old Testament categories and Old Testament vocabulary and expressing them more precisely in New Testament categories. And this is just, uh, in fact, I had a group of pastors over here this morning. On Thursday mornings, we have uh, three or four that meet here, and we have another three or four around the country that will uh, Skype in, and so we have some some uh, good conversations as we work through various theological topics. And this morning we got off onto something related to this and understanding. One of the pastors asked a question about a uh, passage he was he was dealing with, and um, and his question was that how much is, is this an Attic Greek idiom, and how much how how much do we need to understand other forms of classical uh, Greek to understand Koine Greek, which got us into an interesting uh, discussion on just understanding idioms. How many idioms that we have in English that we don't understand their origin, but in modern 20th century English, we know the meaning of the idiom. For example, if you say someone kicked the bucket, you know where that came from? Kick the bucket. Well, there are some people who think that kicking the bucket had to do with somebody who's getting hung, and they'd stand them up on a bucket and hang them. But there is an old English word that came over from the French that is that sounds like bucket and became bucket. But it and if you look in some old like 17th, 16th century uh, uh, English dictionaries, the word bucket had another meaning, and that was a beam and uh, a cross beam and when you would a butcher shop when they would hang when they would kill an animal and hang it upside down in its death throes the feet would kick the bucket meaning kick the beam as and that was in its final death throes but we use that phrase kick the bucket well raining cats and dogs and all kinds of other idioms that have their origin in the 13th, 14th century, maybe even earlier, and we don't even understand what they mean etymologically and all of that history. But do we have to understand Elizabethan English or Middle English or any of that in order to be able to understand those idioms? Not at all, because they, they, the idiom itself has its own distinct meaning, and that has been brought over into modern English, and we know what that means. So... Um, we have to be careful with how we handle these uh, ancient ancient languages and, and other cultures. Now, in light of this, I want you to turn to a passage we will look at as uh, later on in tonight's lesson, and it's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, if you look down to about verse 28, Jesus gives a parable of two sons working in a, um, or excuse me, verse 33. It's where the uh, parable begins. The parable of the wicked vine dressers. Here another parable, Jesus said. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So the owner of the vineyard leaves. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The vine dressers took its servants and killed them. Each time he sent one, they beat him up, they killed him and stoned him until finally he sends his son, verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, 
they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Is he alive? See, he's the heir and he's alive. This is Jewish culture. So I don't know where he got his information, but I think you demonstrate from the scripture that that's just not um, not quite uh, squared away. So we're in Hebrews 9.15. You don't need to turn there. This is just our touchstone for the doctrine of inheritance. Hebrews 9.15 in uh, <clears throat> English translation says, For this reason, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that those who are called, that is believers, that is those who respond by faith alone in Christ alone. As I pointed out, I repeat this, maybe you'll catch it. This is one of those words that you'll find a lot of four and five point Calvinists will trap you on that this concept of being the called refers to the elect. And the way the word is used in the scriptures in two senses, one in terms of an open invitation of the gospel, that's how we would express it in modern our modern language, the open gospel invitation to believers and unbelievers, and the other is in response to those who respond to the call. And they are, they are the call. They are the ones who believe. So it's just a, a synonym for those who respond in faith, that those who are saved, those who are the saved, the called ones, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so once again, Hebrews is focusing us on this important doctrine of inheritance. Now, last week I went through about the first uh, three or so points. And um, I started off with just a key verse, Colossians 3, 23 to uh, 24, the last phrase there in the last three lines, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, showing that inheritance in this verse speaks of, uh, of, of this being given as a reward. A reward is for service. And, and we also think of reward in other passages as a gift. So that's the, that's the real crux of the issue is trying to understand, uh, the inheritance in terms of some places it's a gift, some places it's a reward. How are we to understand inheritance? I looked at the basic Greek words, the whole word group, kleronomos, uh, kleronomeo, kle, uh, kleronomia. These are word, the Greek words. And just like the Hebrew, they have that same concept of possession or ownership, not just the death of someone who's passing on property, but the core idea of ownership. The two Greek, I mean, excuse me, the two Hebrew words are nachala, uh, for inheritance, heritage, or possession, and yarash, to take possession of something, to dispossess, inherit it, disinherit it, has a wide range of meaning. Both of these have at the very core this idea of, of possession or owner, Ownership of something. Now, one of the reasons this is important in Hebrews is because this word group, kleronomos, based on kleronomos, is used nine times in the book of Hebrews, one form of the word or another, which tells us that this is a major focal point in Hebrews. It's about challenging these 
Jewish believers who are tempted to just bail out on their Christian life because they're under persecution, they're under rejection from their friends and family, and the writer of Hebrews is challenging them not to give up because there is a there, there's a reward, there's an inheritance. Don't be like that uh, Exodus generation that did not that, that were that were not allowed to enter into the promised land because of their disobedience, and so they lost the realization of their inheritance. They were still saved, they were still uh, part of God's people, but they lost that 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 realization of what God had promised them. We saw that under point two, point one was just nomenclature, point two uh, dealt with uh, our position in Christ, which for us is the center point for us. Christ is the heir of all things. Now, remember this because where we're headed, I don't know if we'll get there tonight, I hope we do, uh, is the passage in Romans eight sixteen and 17 that we are joint heirs with Christ. So Christ is the heir of all things, and that passage talks about being joint heirs with Christ. How does that come together? Uh, how does that come together for us? Hebrews 1-2 is our key passage there that, that, that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So he is an heir even before he comes. That's a point we'll get from Matthew 21-33, the passage we just looked at, when the Son came to the vineyard, he was an heir before he came. He wasn't an heir after he came. So that's that's his position because of who he who he is, not because of what he did. Uh, third, Christ's inheritance is based on his uh, com- successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. The realization of that comes from his successful completion of his mission. Then the fourth point that we looked at is that Jesus Christ is qualified because he was impeccable in his humanity. He learns obedience to the things that he suffered, goes through the same process that we go through. That was where I ended last time. Uh, Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 5.8 are two key passages that talk about the fact that God had to mature the Lord Jesus Christ through sufferings. In his humanity, he goes through the same process that we go through in learning to be obedient. Learning to be obedient doesn't mean that you're disobedient in the process, but he is learning in his humanity that God uh, supplies the need, God strengthens him so that later when he's in his ministry, uh, he has the spiritual maturity to handle that which he faces. Those four points we covered last time, Fifth point, his spiritual growth qualified him for his inheritance, Psalm 2.8, Hebrews 1.2, tying those together. Because of that spiritual growth, he's qualified for the inheritance. Psalm 2.8, this is that great Christological psalm. Ask of me, this is God the Father speaking, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now what this points out is that as the Son, the heir of all th- things that we saw in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1-2 relates to his, that Jesus Christ is going to become the ruler of planet Earth and the ruler of the universe. And he is going to be given the nations as his inheritance. Now, when does that happen? 
happens Roman, I mean, Revelation 4 and 5. We studied the whole scene there in the heavens when the Lamb of God comes forward to take the scroll. That is when he is being given the nations as his inheritance. And the breaking of those seven seals on the scroll is the Lamb of God taking uh, dominion over the planet during that seven-year period culminating in his return at the at the second coming. So the Father says, Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now here we have a second word that's used. It's not a word that's used for inheritance. It is a word that is restricted to the idea of possession. But notice how it's used in synonymous parallelism with the word inheritance. Remember, in, in Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme words. They mirror ideas, especially in this kind of parallelism. You have other kinds of parallelism, but in um, um, this kind of parallelism, the first line is synonymous with the next line. So here we understand that the core idea of inheritance is possession. Not the death of the, uh, not necessarily the death of the one preceding. Now, verse six, our airship is based on, on point six, our airship is based on adoption, sonship. So that is the believers, the basis for each of us. We are adopted into God's royal family at the instant of salvation. That's one of those 40 things that God does for us at the instant of salvation is we are instantly adopted into God's royal family and we are given special privileges and power because of our position in Christ. Ephesians is loaded with this, as is Colossians. And these are some of the great truths that we have as believers is our unique position in Jesus Christ. So, our inheritance is related to that position in Jesus Christ. And the passages that we're going to look at are Galatians 3.29 and 4.1. In Galatians 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So, we're heirs according to promise, and that promise goes all the way back to Abraham when God promised him that through him all nations would be blessed. And it is to Abraham and his faith in God that Paul goes in Romans 4 and talks about that we are justified by faith, just as Abraham was justified by faith. And so we are uh, Abraham's descendants spiritually, not physically. That's what he's talking about here. You belong to Christ and you are Abraham's descendants because... You have followed Abraham in his faith in God, which is the basis for justification. And then Galatians 4.1. Now, we're going to come back as we go through these points. We're going to see that the scriptures that we go to fall in clumps. Galatians 3, Galatians 4, especially the first six verses, one solid clump. Uh, another clump that we'll go to is, is in... Uh, Romans, uh, a couple of other clumps that we'll go to that give us a lot of information on, on inheritance. So Galatians 4.1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. See, he's talking about 
uh, as, as a child, he hasn't reached adulthood yet. And Paul is talking about the fact that now as church-age believers, we are huias sons, we're adult sons that, that are adopted, and that gives us special uh, special privileges. But as long as the heir is a child, uh, he doesn't differ from a slave, although he's owner of everything. So there are stages here. That's the, the main point, but our position in Christ is the is the issue. Now, the second set of verses, these are the fun ones. Romans 8, 16, and 17. In Romans 8, we have a focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Romans 6, 7, and 8 describe the believer's spiritual life, his sanctification. Romans 1, 2, and the first part of 3 describe the fact that Every human being is under condemnation because we're all sinners. First of all, it talks about Gentiles and it talks about Jews. Then we have a summary that there's, quoting from the Old Testament, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And then we get into God's solution, starting in the middle of chapter 3. And the God's solution has to do with justification. Romans 3, Romans 4 talks about justification. Romans 5 is reconciliation. But Romans 6, we move from what we would call phase 1 salvation to phase two salvation, which is spiritual growth. And so everything in Romans 6, 7, and 8 relates to that. Romans 6 talks about the challenge that we need to recognize and reckon ourselves to be dead to sin because of our position in Christ. That when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are baptized into Christ, identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that the tyranny of the sin nature is broken. And so now, Romans 10.13, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and no longer yield our, our bodies to serve the sin nature. We are now uh, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Romans 7 comes along and gives us Paul's whole struggle. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I really don't want to do. Woe is me. I'm just, I, I'm a terrible sinner. I can't fulfill what God wants me to do. No mention of the Holy Spirit, Romans 6. No mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans 7. All of a sudden we get to Romans 8 and it's all about the Spirit. And that's because what God is showing here is the, the positional reality in Romans 6 that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Well, how do we do that? Is it just sort of a bootstrap kind of spirituality where we just suck it up and we say, okay, I'm just going to enforce a rigid morality on myself and I'm not going to do what I shouldn't do? Well, that's what Paul tried in Romans 7 and it doesn't work because man, when man is trying to do it from his own resources, he can't fulfill the Christian life because the Christian life is a supernatural way of life and we just can't do it on our own. We can only do it by means of the Holy Spirit. So Paul brings the Holy Spirit in in Romans chapter 8. So Romans 8 is focused on uh, God the Holy Spirit. And we come down to about Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 16. And he talks about the uh, some of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to each believer. And in verse, uh, let me see, verse 15, he ties it to adoption. I don't have that on the screen, but in verse that's the context. He says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. See, in Romans 6, he said we're born bond slaves 
to sin. We are slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. There's nothing you could do before you were saved other than follow the dictates of the sin nature, whether that involved morality or immorality, whether that involved doing relative good or sin. All you could do is a sin nature. That's it. You didn't have any other nature. There's nothing else going on. All you can do is is do something that's generated by the flesh. But once you're saved, that bondage to the sin nature, that tyranny is broken, so that Paul can say that we are no longer to uh, serve the sin nature, but we are to serve Christ. Now, verse 15, Romans 8:15, he says, For you did not receive that spirit of bondage again to fear. You're not back under that same yoke to the sin nature, but you received the spirit of adoption. And that's the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit with our adoption into God's royal family. We'll see that the Holy Spirit is given to us as the pledge of our position and our future future destiny at salvation. He is the seal of... That we are given as a as the pledge to that 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 future destiny. So we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba, in the in the uh, in the Hebrew, same as in Aramaic, Av is the is the Hebrew for Father, and the the that's the A B. And then the last B A is the diminutive. It's the it's a term of endearment. It's like uh, daddy, uh, Av is father, Ava is, is, is daddy. It is a term indicating a very, uh, very close relationship that we have with the father. Then verse 16 goes on to say that the spirit himself, that is the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, how does that bearing witness to our spirit take place. It is not verbal, audible communication. It is not even a uh, a vibration or uh, rosy glow or any of the other things that people say. It, it is a sense of it is that sense of assurance of salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody recognizes that right away, but the Holy Spirit is doing that. Uh, communicating that with our human spirit that we receive at regeneration, that we are children of God. And the word that's used for children, there isn't a word for a small child, but the word technon, which can refer to a small child or an older adolescent, but it's focusing on the fact that we are members of God's royal family. And then we get into... A, 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 a train of logic. And if children, okay, so the first premise is that we're saved, so the Holy Spirit bears witness to us that we are uh, adopted children of God. Now, if we're children, and that would be if, and it's true, first class condition, if we're children, then we're also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the problem that we have in this is it looks like if we're children, we are both heirs of God 
and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ, as if those are fully true for every believer from the point of adoption on. The problem we run into is a problem that's generated by that next if. That next if is a third-class condition. If we suffer with him, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If we don't suffer with him, does that mean we're not joint, we lose our salvation? We're not heirs of God? What's going on here? Well, we have to understand that this is a matter of punctuation. In the original Greek manuscripts, there's no punctuation. They don't even have spaces between words. You take a look at some of the, uh, some of the uh, codexes and some of the, the uncials, which are the, where it's all capital letters, and they just run together. There's no commas, there's no, and, and they, they don't have rules of, of uh, hyphenation like we have, where you hyphenate between syllables. When you run out of space on the line, you just start the next line with whatever letter's next. And so it just looks like one long uh, run-on sentence. And the, the brilliance of Greek is that the, the grammar and the punctuation is embedded in the grammar. That's why Greek grammar is so important, because it helps us to understand where, uh, where the thought structure is and how to, how to understand the thought of the writer. So we look at this in the English, and we see that the English translators have put a hyphen or an M dash after the first heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and then a common. I think this is the New American Standard. Uh, different translations will put the commas in a couple of different places. Then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now that punctuation makes it look as if heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ are synonymous. And then they would both be conditioned by the if clause, the conditional uh, particle there, that we're only heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if we suffer, uh, if we suffer with Him. Now this is the problem that you get into when you, uh, when you don't know what the punctuation is. Now, I'm going to give you a little exercise here. Uh, you know, this is the night for having pop quizzes and congregational involvement. So I want you to look at this first sentence. There's no punctuation there. I want you to think about how that should be punctuated. Some of you have heard me do this before. This is, I, I'm, this is a great illustration. Woman without her man is nothing. Those are the words. Now, women will often punctuate it this way. Woman, without her, man is nothing. So the, the, um, the subject is really, you're talking about the man, and that if he doesn't have a uh, good woman, then he's just nothing. But that, that looks at that sentence and sees the, your main clause is man is nothing. Men, on the other hand, will put the commas in a slightly different place. They... They'll say, uh, they'll take the first comma out and it becomes woman without her man is nothing. So now what you have is woman is nothing. 
And that becomes your main clause. And she's nothing because she didn't have a good man. So just the addition or subtraction of a comma can completely change the meaning of the sentence. And the commas and the periods and the quotation marks and the colons and semicolons that you have in your English Bible aren't inspired. Those are added by translators based on their understanding of the grammar of the Greek. And there's no objectivity there. I mean, you don't appeal to some sort of objective grammar and go, okay, I'm going to look at, at a, a Blas de Brunner Funk, paragraph 95, subparagraph 3, and that's going to tell me exactly how to punctuate that. It just doesn't work that way. You have to uh, understand it on the basis of, uh, and sometimes you compare one scripture with scripture. You look at it and say, well, if I punctuate this way, it would mean that. And then that would con- that would contradict this verse over here in Peter. So, well, that may not be right. So then you go to second option. And that's how you work with translation. But if your theology is skewed to begin with, then that shapes how you translate. Now, I used to not understand this, and one of the, the, one of the key speaker we're going to have this year at the, at the pastor's conference during the day is Dr. Robert Thomas. And Dr. Thomas is a, he's a great old curmudgeon, and he's been teaching Greek for almost 50 years. I think in 1961, he got his, uh, he received his doctorate in theology from Dallas Seminary and was the first full-time faculty member hired by uh, Talbot Seminary, which was the seminary graduate school of Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles out in California back when they were all, uh, back when they were all pretty solid. In the 80s, when John MacArthur took over the old uh, um, Los Angeles Baptist College and renamed it Master's College and Seminary, uh, by then, Talbot was already uh, beginning to drift, and a lot of their better faculty shifted and moved up to the master's uh, college and seminary. Bob Thomas was one of those that went up there. He's written a, you know numerous articles in technical theological journals, and I've always benefited from him. He's got one of the finest technical two-volume commentaries on Revelation. I don't always agree with him because... He may be a little bit, he takes some positions I think are, are more sympathetic to lordship, but he never goes there, he never talks about that subject, so I have no idea where he stands on that. But he is, um, he's very good, and he came out with a book a couple of years ago called Evangelical Hermeneutics. I think it was published about 2002 or 2003, and that's what he's going to be talking about uh, at, the, at the conference. And as I was reading through one of his chapters, on translation theory, I, I came to understand something I really ha- hadn't realized before. He said, it's not the job of a translator to solve the ambiguities in the Greek. Now, see, most of us, because you've listened to pastors who teach like I teach and, and are, get into the Greek and the Hebrew and retranslate, we tend to come to the scripture and say, why didn't they translate it that way? And according to Thomas, the role of the translator is that if it's ambiguous in the Greek, 
it should be left ambiguous in the English so that the pastor can interpret it from the pulpit. I thought, well, that's, that's, a, that's good because translations are going to be used by people of different, uh, different denominations and they are translated by men who come from different theological persuasions. And when you get uh, pastors who are using a what's called the dynamic equivalent uh, method of translation, uh, let me see, let's explain this terminology. You have two ways of looking at language. You have what would be a formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. And Charlie's going to speak on a subject at the conference dealing with language and hermeneutics. And he talked a lot about this at, at the, at, at the uh, pre-trib conference. So those of us who went to that are looking forward to hearing him a second time so that maybe we'll understand him. But it's a critical critical topic on language because language has to convey meaning. And what we find today is that students don't think language can really convey meaning. And I was talking with Tommy not long ago, and he said there's always, uh, he said, first of all, we, he never gets anybody in his classes that has ever been exposed to the kind of teaching that we do. They've never heard anything like it before. But there's, and, and most of them will, they, they get to where they, they like it. That You know, we can really learn that much from the Scripture. We can really do that with language. But there's always two or three who have been really influenced by postmodernism, and they don't think language can really bear that burden. And so how, do, how can we really say that, it, that we can learn from it, that it really means that? And I said, well, you know, you can always say, well, you don't understand what they're saying because their words can't convey any meaning. He said, yeah, I've tried that, but they always try to try to get around that. But um, uh, so when we look at language, we have to figure out how do we translate from one language to another. And if you ever studied languages uh, or if you can fluently speak another language, you know that you can translate a phrase or a sentence in a very rigid, almost word for word manner into another language. And it almost, if you're real rigid, it, it may not even make sense when you bring it over into the into the translation. So there's always a sense in which you have to add a certain movement towards that dynamic side to communicate. But then you can also translate something in a very idiomatic way um, that is almost like street vernacular. You get the same idea, but that's but you lose a lot. And there's the more you move in the dynamic equivalence direction, the more the translator is is adding ideas and nuances to the the, the meaning of the text to the point that when it gets done, it may not bear any resemblance whatsoever to. Um, what you read in the King James Version, for example. And a good example of this is this: there's a Bible out there called the Message. And it, it almost gets to the point of a paraphrase, but it's not quite a paraphrase. Paraphrase would be like the old Living Bible uh, that Ken Taylor, Dallas Seminary grad, did back in the, in the 50s. I think there's a good place for a, uh, for a paraphrase like the Living Bible, not for study, but just if you're... If you don't know anything about the Bible and it's something that is pretty foreign to you and you never heard of Jacob or Esau or Melchizedek or Solomon or Ahithophel or any of these people 
then to read a a, a paraphrase can really orient you to the, the to the flow of the Bible, to who, the who, what, when, where, why. I remember I read a uh, paraphrase digest thing that came out based on the Living Bible back in about 73. And when I got through, I said, you know, now I kind of understand what the Old Testament's about. So, But you wouldn't want to use that for a study Bible. It is a paraphrase. And Ken Taylor did uh, the Living Bible as a way to tell, read the Bible to his four, five, six-year-old children. And to take the words of the Bible in the King James, because that's all there was back in the 50s, and to take that, put it into a paraphrase into modern English, and then read it and his, so his kids could understand it. And there's a place for that. But it's not a translation. You wouldn't want to study that way. So what happens is when you get into a lot of these modern translations, they operate on a much more dynamic equivalence viewpoint, like the New International Version. And you have places that, uh, like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that talks about uh, where Paul says, I wish I could speak to you as spiritual, but I can't. I have to speak to you as, as fleshly. And it's sarkos in, uh, sarkonos in the Greek, which is the word based on flesh, sarks. Well, NIV translates it worldly. Well, see, he's taken the word for, for the flesh, and he's interpreted that to mean worldliness. Uh, it's not a translation anymore. And so it's more like his commentary, uh, not a translation. Wayne House calls it the New International Commentary. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. And that's a problem you get into. Translators shouldn't be reading their, tra- their, their theology into their translation. They should leave the ambiguities there. So that's, that's where you get into problems with punctuation. Now, Romans 8.17, if you translate it this way, with a comma after God, you can see that I put a yellow comma after God, and you take out the comma after Christ, then now you have two different airships. You have one airship of God that is related to being a uh, related to our adoption. That is the unconditional inheritance every believer receives, that eternal inheritance that every believer receives at the instant of salvation, where we have eternal life, we, we're going to be resurrected, we're going to uh, have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, the old things are passed away. So things that are in common for every single believer are part of our being an heir of God. But that next phrase, joint heir with Christ, is qualified by this conditional clause. If we suffer with him. Now, suffering with Jesus is not a condition for salvation. Jesus didn't say, believe on me and suffer with me and I'll give you eternal life. Now, he says things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. And that's where lordship salvation advocates get messed up because they think that discipleship uh, qualifications are salvation qualifications. And that's not, that, that confuses the reward passages with the gift passages. So you have some things that are given as a free gift with the salvation passage at phase one that are yours forever that cannot be taken away from you. But there are other things that God will give 
on condition of spiritual growth, on condition of other aspects of the spiritual life. And that's what Romans 8.17 does. You split the two apart, two types of heirs, heirs of God on the one hand, joint heirs with Christ on the other hand. Joint heir with Christ is related to ruling and reigning with him in uh, in the millennial kingdom and eternity future, and it is based upon pursuing the spiritual life. Uh, the same way Christ did. We go go back to the verse we looked at earlier in Hebrews. Let me see if I can uh, find it quickly. Here we go. Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to mature the author of their salvation through sufferings. Verse Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That didn't have anything to do with salvation. That has to do with his spiritual growth uh, process, going through the adversity of living in the devil's world and living with sinners. So now, when we follow that same process of going through suffering and responding by the application of God's word, and so growth uh, ensues in our spiritual life, then we that is suffering with him. This isn't talking about suffering with him in terms of the suffering that occurs during the night before the crucifixion, that early morning and on the cross. This is talking about the the whole panorama of the suffering Christ went through as a human being living in a fallen world living with fallen creatures. Uh, We're going to encounter adversity uh, no matter what. So those are the two categories of inheritance. Now, point seven. So heirship then means to share the destiny of Christ. He has an eternal destiny, and we share it as we share his election. So that is for the we there refers to the body of Christ. That is the destiny of the corporate body of Christ. Although because of failure in the spiritual life, there will be some believers who will not have or experience all of the rewards and all of the uh, blessings that they would have if they had pursued the spiritual life. And this this is important because this brings us back down to reality every single day when we face every single situation in life that every decision, every response just has to do with with where we're headed and training. And once going back to what I talked about the other night in terms of mental discipline, teaching, training ourselves to think in terms of all the situations I'm going through in life are designed to prepare me for the future. And sometimes I'm going to I'm going to win some and sometimes I'm going to fail. And sometimes it feels like I fail a whole lot more than I ought to or that I should and it's up to God to sort it all out and he knows when we're walking by the spirit and when we're not we can't evaluate this on our own. So a couple of passage here's uh, a couple of passages that relate this to uh, the believer, Ephesians 1.11, as well as 1 Peter 1.3. Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained 
an inheritance. That's for every believer. We have obtained the church. Every believer in Jesus Christ is at the instant of salvation is automatically a member of the universal church. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. Now, don't get hung up on the word predestined. Predestined simply means to, that there is a destiny or a target, a goal. And predestined means that before time began, God established the destiny of every believer. And that destiny is to be like Christ and to, to, to share in his, his kingdom. So we are to sh- share that. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then 1 Peter 1, 3, that's another one of those key passages. Is 1 Peter 1 really focuses on this whole idea of inheritance and what God has given us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See how directional that is? We're born again, that's past. That's what happened in our past when we trusted Christ as our Savior. We're born again to something in the future, a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope. See, it's related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he was resurrected, he goes into phase three. He's glorified. That's related to our hope. It's our future expectation. So we're caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that brings us then to, well, I'll try to cover in about five minutes, and that's Christ's airship. What exactly is Christ's airship? What is this that he is the heir of? He's appointed heir of all things. How does that come out of the scripture? Well, first of all, he's called heir because of who he is and not because of what he did. He qualifies for the inheritance because of what he did, but he is the heir because of what he did. Now, that takes us back to that passage that I looked at earlier in Matthew 21. I'm not exegeting or going through the whole passage because that would take us far afield of the point that I want to make. But the simple point is in Matthew 21, when we get down to Verse 38, the vine dresser saw the son. They said among themselves, this is the heir. See, he's alive. He's already the heir. When he comes, he's the heir. He's not the heir because of what he does, but who he is. Uh, They say, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Now, of course, in the parable, the son is analogous to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we understand. The heirship is because of who he is, not what he did. The second thing we note comes out of a passage in Psalm, Psalm 8-3, compared to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. So the second thing we note is the role of the Son in relation to creation. David um, writes in the Psalm, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And all Paul is saying here, the term son of man here isn't a technical term for the son of man. It's it's just another um, 
variation to say a human being. What, what David is saying is why, when you look at the vastness of the universe, the, 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 the size and scope of the, the starry skies and the solar system and everything, and he didn't have a uh, telescope and he couldn't have comprehended as much as we can. When you look at the vast immensity of the universe, Man is just a tiny, tiny little speck. Why are we so important? What is it about humanity and the human race that is so significant that the, the, the universe somehow is placed under the authority of man so that man's decisions impact the universe? They don't just impact the... Um, Love Canal up in New York, and they don't just impact the Hudson River, and they don't just impact uh, the ecology of the Gulf of Mexico or the Gulf of California. I mean, that's just piddly stuff that these ecologists want to come up with. Man's decisions are much more damaging than that. Uh, what, what, what occurred when Adam sinned reverberated, fractured the universe, so that we live in a fallen universe that just doesn't, doesn't function at all like it did before that. In, in, in physics, there's two laws, the laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that matter is neither created nor, de- nor destroyed. And that law doesn't come into effect until after the creation week, when God creates energy. The second law of thermodynamics states that all energy is moving toward a state of entropy, or it's going from a state of being usable to a state of being non-usable. But it, it, it's not destroyed. It's just not, not usable. Of course, this is one of the great arguments against evolution because if matter is neither created nor destroyed, that means there's only, our, our energy is not being created or destroyed. That means there's only a finite amount of, of energy. And if energy is running down, then if the universe has been around for an infinite amount of time, then we ran out of gas a long time ago. See what I'm saying? If if you start with a finite amount, it's going to run down by now. So there's got to be a a starting point, and uh, we we haven't run out uh, of energy yet. But when that second law comes into effect at the fall, when everything begins to deteriorate and man begins to age. I mean, you had progression of time, but you didn't have aging. You didn't have all those things that came as a result of sin. So the second law of thermodynamics comes into effect then. But man is created to, to, to rule over the universe and just his very, his very decisions change the nature of the universe. Now in verse 5, David says, yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the angels. Now, the Septuagint translates Elohim there as angels. The word there in the Hebrew is Elohim, and Elohim has a range of meaning. Normally, we think of God. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But Elohim can also be gods, little gods, or just heavenly beings. It can refer to even to human beings as lords, as those in authority. So... Uh, the Septuagint, the rabbis understood that this was heavenly beings, angels, and that's how it's translated when it's quoted into in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. You've made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels, 
and you crown him with glory and majesty. That's where we're headed. You made him to rule over the works of your hands. So man is to rule over everything. Earth, planet Earth is the center of the universe. It's the command station of the universe. And man's decisions are the issue. There's not some other race out there that somehow seeded the planet like we heard the other night in, uh, when we watched Expelled. Uh, man was made to rule over the works of our hands. You've put all things under his feet. And this is picked up in, I don't think I made a slide, but it's picked up in Hebrews chapter, chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 7 through 9 applies this to Jesus Christ, that he is the man who ultimately fulfills all of this as the second Adam. And that's his airship. He's going to be put in charge of everything so that this human being who ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father, that's, he becomes the controller of the universe as a man, as a human being at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, Hebrews 2.8 applies this quote, says, You have put all things in subjection, subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Hasn't happened yet. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, as the ultimate man, the second Adam, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so when you compare these, these passages dealing with uh, Jesus as the heir before time began, that he is, that, that man was created to rule over the universe, even though he's created initially lower than the angels, and that this is fulfilled in Christ. We see that's what that inheritance of Christ means. It's rulership as God intended man to rule over the works of his hands. Now next time I'll come back, we'll review that briefly, and then we'll go into the next section which talks about inheritance as both a present reality and a future possession where we'll get into 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to focus on our future destiny, that you are in control, that even though there's chaos around us and we're often discouraged and disappointed as we watch what's going on in the world around us, we often have uncertainty about our future. We do have certainty about this future that we are destined to rule and reign with Christ. And, Father, we pray that we might be faithful in studying and applying your word. We pray this in Christ's name.